Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. Come on, Jesus. So we've been in a, well, it's not working. So we've been in a series. We actually kicked off a series um, a couple weeks ago called Rethink. How many of you guys have been here for the whole series? You've been here for the whole series? Say amen. Amen. That's good. If you've been here for the whole series online, you can chat or type in the chat. Amen. It's been a great series. Let me just encourage you, if you have not been here for the last couple weeks, please go back and listen to the messages because they actually build upon each other. Okay. And you, you really, really, really need to get this as a great foundation. But good news is, is I love doing reviews. So even if you haven't watched the last two messages or been present for the last two messages, you're going to get a little bit of review. Amen. Come on, church, talk to me tonight. Amen? Amen? All right. Thank you. All right, so the word rethink in the series called Rethink, and the word rethink means this. It means to think again about something such as a policy or a course of action, especially uh, in order to make changes. The idea of rethinking is so incredibly important. The concept of rethinking is so incredibly important for the follower of Jesus Christ. We are to live a life of continual rethinking. The Bible uses a different word. They use the word repent, right? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And repent doesn't mean, you heard me say this, it doesn't mean coming and laying down at the altar and begging God for forgiveness. Repent means simply to change your mind. It's where we get, it's the word metanoia, right? The Greek word metanoia, it means to change your mind. And so Jesus showed up on the scene. And he preached a ministry of rethinking. He preached a ministry of rethinking. His entire ministry was a rethinking ministry, a repenting ministry. Change the way you think. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, let's see, Matthew chapter 5. Let me go ahead and turn there right quick. Matthew 5. And this is what it says. All right, Matthew 5. Hold on. Here we're getting there. Matthew 5, and I read this uh, the last two weeks. I'm going to read it again. Because how many of y'all went home and read this scripture over the last week? Amen. Some honest folk in the room. All right. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, and this is where we'll start. This is what I mean by when I say Jesus, his ministry was a repent or a rethinking ministry. In verse 38, it says this. He's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders at the time. He says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. That law that he's referencing, if you're a note taker in the room, that law is referenced over in Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25. So this is the exact passages of Scripture he's countering. That's Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25. And it says, you have heard that the law has said punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It goes down and gets dirty, and it says a hand for a hand and a burn for a burn. And he says in verse 39, but I say, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Verse 40 says, and if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. And if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. 
Give to those who ask and don't turn away those who want to borrow. He goes down in verse 43. This is what he says. He said, you've heard the law that says this is the second time he's saying this. You've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy right back there in Exodus. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I think if we were being honest in the room, we would all kind of agree that that's kind of how we like it, isn't it? We want to love our neighbors, but we want to hate our enemies. Amen. But Jesus goes on and says, but I say, love your enemies. And there's no other way around that, right? That, that word love there is the Greek word agape. It's, it's love. It's love your enemies. It's, it doesn't say kind of like them. It doesn't say tolerate them. It doesn't say be fake and nice in their face, but talk about them behind their back. It says, it says, love your neighbor. It says, love your enemies. And then it goes on and says, pray for those who persecute you. And the type of praying that he's talking about is blessing them. The Apostle Paul goes in Romans 12, and he talks about what that blessing looks like, right? Romans 8, he talks about what that blessing looks like. He says, bless your enemies. Bless those who curse you. That means actively seek God's favor for their lives. Come on, y'all. Now, that's a hard thing, amen? When we pray for our enemies, when we pray for those who, uh, who persecute us, we kind of pray prayers like this. Lord, pop the tire on the way home, Lord. Give them a ticket, Lord, on the way home. Let them get caught speeding, Lord. Let their entire bank account get dried up in the name of Jesus. None of y'all have ever prayed prayers like that at all, right? You ain't said it out your mouth, but you thought it in your head. And so Jesus said, no, no, no. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. He said, in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Guys, I, I wish that I could just give you everything that's in my, my heart and my mind right now so you guys can get this so I don't have to do a 56-week series on this. Some of y'all were like, 56 weeks? I don't know how long it's going to be. But it's all in there. But I'll, I'll, In that way, in what way? When you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, in that way, you will be acting as true children of who? Your father in heaven. Did you get that, church? We have to rethink the way we think God is. Because you can spend all sorts of time, and we're going to get there today, you can spend all sorts of time in the Old Testament, and you can see that the, that the way God is portrayed in the Old Testament in particular stories and situations, he does not look exactly like the God that Jesus is telling us we're to be like when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Is the issue God or is the issue man? Come on, church, that's an easy answer. Is the issue God or is the issue man? It's man. He said, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives sunlight to both evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He says he loves those who hate him, and he loves those who love him. Ooh. Ooh. Y'all think I'm preaching this for you. 
But I am preaching this for me. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do it do that much. He said in verse 47, if you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Even unbelievers do that. Even people who have no concept of registration of God, registering God in their lives, even they do that. He said, but you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. And we saw that we've been taught to be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. We've been taught that that means that we have to live a sinless life. We have to live a pure life. We can't do X, Y, and Z sins because God's perfect. We're supposed to be perfect. And we get that beat into our heads. we got to be perfect. And that's not at all what that scripture is talking about. That scripture has been so ripped out of context, it's not funny. He said, you're to be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. And how he's perfect is he loves those who love him and he loves those who hate him. He's good to those who are good to him and he's good to those who who despise him and, and mistreat him. He loves his enemies and he loves his neighbors. And as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, we wear that title uh, proudly as Christians, as little Christs, we are to live that lifestyle out and be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect. And it's simply loving. I say simply, but it ain't simply, y'all. It ain't simply. But it is loving people. The church does not have a shortage of buildings, right? Amen. The church does not have a shortage of pastors who get up in the pulpits and preach every single week. The church does not have a shortage of programs to meet needs of different communities that they're in. The church does not have a shortage of finances as much as people would think they don't. They don't have a shortage of finances. You know what the church has a shortage of? Love. Oh, my gosh, do we have a shortage of love? We have a shortage of love. If we're going to be persecuted, we, we, we wear these badges. Oh, I'm getting away from my notes, but that's okay. We wear a badge of persecution. We cry persecution on social media because someone doesn't agree with us. But if we're being persecuted as a follower of Jesus Christ, It should be because our lives look like Jesus Christ. And he's friends of sinners, and he's friends of saints. He hangs out with the gluttons and the drunks and the tax collectors, and he hangs out with the church folk. If you're going to be persecuted like Christ, then we should start living like Christ. And it's not about trying to not do certain things. It's about loving people radically. Jesus, he had the authority to correct Scripture. Did you hear me when I said he has the authority to correct Scripture? How many of you? He quoted Scripture. Y'all know he went to the Old Testament. He quoted Scripture. And then he turned around and said, you have heard it said. You know the Scriptures say this. But he says, but I say this. Your Scripture that you go by, tells you to hate your enemies. But I'm telling you, you missed it. 
you missed it. You scriptures, you 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 have scriptures where you say God says you are to kill and destroy your enemies. He says, but I'm telling you, you've never seen God until you've seen me. And when you see me, you see something different. You don't see a God who's out to destroy his enemies. You see a God who's willing to die for his enemies. Let me correct your scripture. But it's scripture. And Jesus said, yeah, and I have the authority to correct it. He had the authority to correct Scripture because he is the Word of God. Lord knows we've heard this said over and over again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Y'all know I do it every week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, he, we, we, we've been said, you know, we've heard it said that this is the Word of God. That We talked about this last week. This is the Word of God. We're going to get into the Word of God. I preached that. I said that so much. I've even said it having, after having started Journey Church. I, it's just habit. I said it for so long that I, that I get in the habit of saying, let's dig into the, the Word of God. And I try to catch myself and say, let's dig into the Scripture. Because the Scripture, this B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, the basic instructions before leaving earth that are anything but basic. The Bible, the scriptures, are different than the word of God. Hello. In John chapter 1, right there, we'll read the first five verses. And it says, in the beginning, the word already existed. Y'all see in your Bible that that word is capitalized. It's deity. It's Godhead. In the beginning, the Word already existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word not only was with God in fellowship, facing God, face-to-face with God, but the Bible says the Word uh, was God. It says in verse 2, he existed in the beginning with God, so the Word was already there in the beginning. And it said God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him, and the Word, excuse me, the Word gave life to everything that was created. And this life brought light to everyone. Man, God's pretty inclusive. Did you notice that? Do you notice that? How inclusive our God is. Not exclusive, but inclusive. Brought light to everyone, for the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never, ever extinguish it. Right? And then you go down to verse 17. Let's go there. And I have the New King James translation uh, just because it's a more accurate translation, the way it translates this this scripture. And and mine, it should say, and the law came by who? That's how it says. Let me me jump out in front of here. In the beginning, hey, that's not the right one. Verse 17. Verse 17. Is it up there? I didn't jump. I was there. It's right there. John 1, 17. Come on, somebody. All right. Let me jump out here real quick. It says, for the law was given by who, church? Read it again, church. For the law was given by who, church? But what? Came what? Listen to me. For the law came by Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
grace, the very thing that the law lacked. Now, when I say the law, like I'm not talking about the, the Ten Commandments that were given, the, the Ten Commandments that said, don't uh, worship any other God but, but me and don't make idols for yourself and, and don't kill your neighbor, you know, don't kill somebody and, and don't sleep around. Those, those, those top ten laws right there that were given, those were, those were laws that basically said our role is to love God and love others. Y'all remember that when the guy came to Jesus and said, which is the greatest command? Notice he said command. Right. And then he said, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind, which encapsulated the top four of those commandments. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself, which encapsulated the bottom six commandments. And he said, but he remember, he said, the second is equally as important. So they're both important. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. But it says the law. I'm talking about all the other laws that came after that. Because y'all know, listen, there was 10 commandments, and there was like 611 laws that came after that. Y'all know that, right? And even in those 611 laws that came out of that, that are written throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus and and so on, did you know that even some of the laws that were given, they contradict each other, those laws? They did. Like the law of, uh, like the law, he said, uh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's a law that was written. And we'll get into talking about law uh, a little bit later on, but, but I want you to hear this. For the law came by who, church? But then he said, but grace and truth came by Jesus. Okay, go back to this. How many of y'all see grace in you pluck my eye out, I pluck your eye out? Anybody see that? You punch my tooth out, I'm going to punch your tooth out. You see? You cut my hand off, I'm going to cut your hand off. You burn me, I'm going to put my stick in the fire, I'm going to burn you. Anybody see grace in that at all? None. Then he goes on and says, grace and, what's the word right there? Truth. Grace and truth. Because some of the laws that were written later on do not reflect the truth of who God is or the heart of God. I want you to look. That word grace right there, uh, it's the word that means goodwill and loving kindness and favor. Goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. Y'all tracking with me? Say amen. All right? And the word truth right there, it's the truth. It's the word that means as pertaining to God. So the law came by Moses, but grace, goodwill, and loving kindness, and favor, and the truth as pertaining to who God is came by Jesus. It makes sense, doesn't it? We've been spending two weeks talking about, talking about who is Jesus. He's the exact representation of God. He is the very character of God. He's not an addition to the revelation of God as laid out through the Bible. He is the full, expressed, only revelation of who God truly is. And John said that grace and truth came by Jesus by Jesus Christ. Go over to John chapter, we're staying in John. John chapter 14, I turn right to it, y'all. John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Some people say, well, you're trying to, you don't take Scripture very seriously. I think I take Scripture very seriously. I mean, we're, we're Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. Amen? John chapter 14, verse 6 and 7 
And Jesus told him, told him, he said, I want to hit this, watch. I am the what church? We've talked about this. What's the word way? If you've been coming to Journey Church for any length of time, what does the word way mean? Come on, y'all. He said, I am the journey. Watch, watch. And then he said, I am the what? Truth. And do you know what that word truth is right there? It's the same word that John used in the beginning when he said, and grace and truth, uh, truth, revelation, knowledge as pertaining to who God is, right? He said, I am the journey that will take you on a journey, right? I take you on a, a trip to discovering the truth as it is, as it pertains to God. And at the end result of that, he says, I am the what? I'm the life. Now watch, that word life is the word zoe. That's a beautiful word, isn't it? It's zoe, and it means the God kind of life, the fullness of life expressed through God. Think about what he just said. I love scripture, y'all. I love being able to unpack it and dive into it. He said, I am the journey that will take, I will take you on a journey. I am the journey you're going to go on to figure out who God is. And in the end of that, is life. Now watch John chapter 5. Let's go back a couple pages. John chapter 5, verse 39. John 5, verse 39. I hear paper Bibles turning, y'all. Makes my heart proud. John chapter 5, verse 39. Do we not have it? We have it up there? Okay. This is what it says. Now, Jesus is talking to these religious leaders at the time, and he says this in verse 39. He says, you search the what, church? You search the scriptures. Notice how he said scriptures. What did he not say? The word of God. He didn't say, you search the word of God. He said, you search the what? Come on. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. And then verse 40, which I didn't give our slide guy. Verse 40 says, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this what? Life. You spend all your time pouring through this. You're avid students of it. But the problem is, is that you think that the more you memorize and the more you study and the more you can look through and understand that somehow at the end of the day, you're going to find this life that you long for. And Jesus said, I'm standing right in front of you, correcting your the theology again, correcting you again. Do you know, listen, in Proverbs, in Proverbs, one of the wisdom Proverbs, it says, it says, my word is life unto you. You ever heard that scripture before? Meditate on my word because it's, it's life to you. And so they're in there meditating on this stuff, memorizing it, theorizing on it, giving interpretations and commentating on it, writing documents about it. And Jesus said, you spend all this time searching for life in these scrolls. 
on the papyrus, on the calfskin. But life is not found in that. Life is found in me. Life is standing right in front of you. The word of God that gives you life is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the Bible, the Bible didn't put flesh on. The Bible didn't put flesh on. The Bible didn't die a horrific death. The Bible was not buried in the tomb, and the Bible did not resurrect to life on the third day. When we come together to celebrate Easter Sunday, we are celebrating the risen Savior, not the risen translation of the Bible. Come on. And the Bible, listen, is not living, is not the living, breathing word of God. Jesus is. And if we're not careful, we can end up worshiping the Bible instead of the one the Bible proclaims. Hear me clearly on this, church, because I know for some of this, this might be a stretch, but I think I've been pretty thorough over the last, how you say that word, thorough? Detail. Descriptive. <laughs> I think I've been pretty good at being able to unpack this and kind of draw our point back to Christ. So I want you to hear me when I tell you this, that I love the scriptures. I've spent the last 23 years of my life reading scripture daily, if not almost daily. There have been some days I haven't. I've studied it. I've listened to thousands and thousands of hours of teaching, read hundreds of books, studied scripture. It's been my life. It's been how I've made a living for the last 20 years, y'all. So I value and I love scripture. Everybody tracking with me? I have a high view of scripture. But the scriptures are not the final authority. Christ is. You hearing me? Okay. Let me explain. Some of y'all right now, I, I, maybe you're thinking, but wait a minute, I thought there's that verse that says that all Scripture is inspired and God breathed. Pull that Scripture up. It's at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16. Y'all got it up there? Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16. It says, now, this is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. I'm going to go back a couple verses, verse 14. <laughs> and this is what it says. But you must remain faithful to the things that you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. Verse 15. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he said? You were given the Holy Scriptures, and they pointed you to who? And when, you, when they pointed you to Jesus, and you received Christ, and you received life. Now, verse 16, watch. All Scripture is inspired by God. Everybody say inspired. 
All scripture is inspired by God. Another translation says all scripture is God-breathed. Now watch. And is useful to teach what is true and, what, and, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Verse 17 says God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I agree a thousand percent with that. Hopefully nothing I've said the last two weeks and in the last 20 minutes has made you think that I don't agree with that. But let me break some stuff down for you real quick. Because we use that scripture to quote in referencing the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. You see, when Paul wrote Timothy, though, there was 27 books not listed. When Paul wrote Timothy, they didn't have a New Testament. You hear me, church? They weren't walking around with a Bible. They weren't. You see, Paul was writing letters to Timothy, and Peter was writing letters, and Titus was getting a letter, and, and you had Paul writing to the church of Galatia, and then he was writing letters to the church of Ephesus and to, to Colossae and to the Corinthian church. And then, and then 70, 80 years after Christ, you had people like Matthew write a book, and Mark and Luke. Luke goes and compiles. Luke didn't even hang out with Jesus. Did you all know that? Luke didn't walk with Jesus. He was a doctor who went by and got firsthand experiences and wrote them, compiled them. He researched and put it all together into his gospel. And then you have the gospel of Mark. And then Luke went on to write the book of Acts. After the fact. You see, you can go through Acts and you can, you can look at Acts and you can see, oh, this is where Paul goes on his first missionary journey. And then go over to the book of Ephesians or, or Colossians and, and read. So he went here. Oh, he's in Colossians right here. Let me go back and read this letter that he wrote to the Colossians. You know, that came after Paul wrote all his letters. So when Paul quoted that to Timothy, he wasn't saying that uh, this New King James version of the Bible that you have is inspired by God. He is saying the Old Testament scriptures are inspired by God. Now, please do not hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that I do not believe the entirety of the Bible is inspired by God. I do. As a matter of fact, the church at that point, at the point where the, the scriptures were canonized, that is to be put together, the church felt like they were inspired. They used them. Listen to me. They used them for the first 400 years as letters. Some churches had these letters. Some churches over here had these letters. Some church fathers had compiled their own version of a, a canonized book. But it wasn't until the end of the 4th century, y'all, 400 years before the church came together, who was unified and said, let's take these 27 books and let's include them with the Hebrew scriptures. And let's pull that together and we'll say these are the inspired scriptures of God. 400 years. The fifth century kicks off with a Bible. And a whole bunch of extra books. Apocrypha, apocrypha literature, maybe. Apocrypha. Something like that. Now watch. So, y'all tracking with me? So the church was one church. 
the church in the fourth century became the state religion of Rome. And the church grew as Rome expanded, the church grew as well. And it wasn't until 1056 the church had its first split. Think about that. The church was unified as one for a thousand years. Did y'all catch that? Now, did they have everything right? Absolutely not. Did it get real shady after they became the state-sponsored religion of the biggest industrial military complex? Did it get a little shady? Yes, it did. Absolutely. But nonetheless, it grew. Nonetheless, the Catholic Church was unified. The Catholic meaning one, universal. Okay? And in 1056, you had the great schism happen. And you had the, you had the Greek the, the Greek church in the east of the Roman Empire and the Latin church in the west of the Roman Empire, they began to have disagreements about theological aspects and popes and, and things like that. And so they end up splitting. And then you had, now you have the Roman Catholic church and then you have the Eastern Orthodox church. And then the, then the Eastern Orthodox, they didn't really split. They stuck, they stuck it out. They still stuck it out up until today. But then on the Western side, you have the Western, the, the Roman Catholic Church. And then something happens in about 1,500, another 500 years after the first divorce, the church goes through another divorce. It's called the Protestant Reformation. So in 1500, you have the Protestant Reformation, starting with the Lutheran denomination church, the Lutheran church, and then, and then Calvin rises, and then you have all these branches of churches that start popping up. And so today in America, what is, what, is, what is known, what we know as church, are just splinter groups of the Protestant Reformation. Y'all tracking with me? So the Catholics have like 15 extra books that are apocrypha literature, the same 39 Old Testament books, same 27 New Testament books. Eastern Orthodox Church has a couple more books on top of that, but they still have the same 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. But when you got to the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation, they said take all the extra books, the apocrypha literature, take all that out, and let's just keep it simple, 39 and 27. Oh, yeah, let's translate it. Let's get King James in the 1600s to translate this into a readable everyday language. And so that's what happens. And King James, they translate the Bible. So, Scripture, that's a really short and flyer version of how that all developed. But some of y'all probably didn't know that, did you? Some of y'all did. Some of you are like, you're wrong on some things. That's okay. I'm up here. You're not. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Somebody, you can't even say apocrypha. I just said it. All right. <laughs> Man, you know what? Thank you. I think I will. All right. I hope I didn't hear everybody just online just heard me swallow that water. That was like, anyways, all right. So the scripture, listen, going back to this, is the scripture inspired? Yeah, I believe it's inspired. I agree with the church that it's inspired. Old Testament and I believe the New Testament letters are inspired of God. 
And they're good for correction. They're good for reproof. But when Paul was talking to Timothy about that, he was saying the Old Testament scriptures were good for that. And they are good for that when, listen to me, church, when Christ is the lens by which we read them. Because do you hear what he said? You were taught the holy scriptures that pointed you to Jesus and you receive life. And so the way that scripture, Old Testament scripture, um, is good for reproof and correction and, and training it up in righteousness is when we are reading it through a Christocentric lens, a Christ-centered lens. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, a little bit, little bit more and then we'll wrap. Y'all learning? Come on, somebody. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 14. Now, <clears throat> Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. This is the third letter of Corinthians. Even though it says it's the second letter of the Corinthians, we don't have the first letter of Corinthians. And we don't have the, the letter that was written back to so Paul. So the Corinthian church wrote Paul. Paul wrote the Corinthian church, right? We don't have those letters. But we do have proof, and you, as you go through and you read 1 Corinthians, where Paul said, hey, in the previous letter you wrote me, I responded like this. Now let me clarify. So even though we have 1 Corinthians, it's really 2 Corinthians. And even though we have 2 Corinthians, it's really 3 Corinthians. Tracking with me? So in 2 Corinthians, which is really 3 Corinthians, <laughs> chapter 3, verse 14, it says, it says, but the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, listen to me, and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant, the Old Testament is being read, the same veil covers their minds so that they cannot understand the what church? So they cannot understand the what church? Why can't they understand the truth? And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, for the law came by who church? Moses, but grace and truth by Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. Verse 16, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what, church? Freedom. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like what? Him. As we are changed into his glorious image. You are, not, listen, we are, our lives are not to look biblical. That's a, that's a stretch. Our lives are not to look biblical. Our lives are to look Christ-like. Hear me. It said, so that all of those, it says, so all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him. Yeah, Christ. More and more like Christ as we are changed into His glorious image. Reading Scripture. Listen, if, if you're going into the Old Testament, and I encourage you, go for it. 
But if you go into the Old Testament and you find yourself getting bogged down, if you go into the Old Testament and you're reading the Old Testament scriptures and you find yourself feeling heavy and you find yourself feeling bound up and you find yourself starting to think, man, I got to start being better and doing better to get better. If that's your mindset, you're not reading that through a Christ-centered lens. I cannot see very well without my glasses, y'all. As a matter of fact, I know Fred's in the back because I can see the shine off his head, but I can't see his face. True story. I love that, brother. True story. I cannot see. And when you go into the Old Testament and you try to read the Old Testament without the lens of Christ, this is what you get. You get very blurry images of God. But when Christ becomes the lens that you go back and you read the Old Testament scripture, now you see it clearly and you're able to distinguish what is God and what is the revelation of God. What is God and what they think is God. And then you go back through and you can start reading and seeing Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. You have a Christ-like lens, you can go in and you can see, you can find Jesus in the story of Abraham and Isaac and the ram caught in the thicket. You can see Jesus in the story of, of, of Joseph, sold and betrayed by his brothers. The Bible says that Christ came to his people and they did not yet recognize They didn't even recognize him. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. Jesus was betrayed by the Jewish people. He was murdered on the cross and then he was thrown into the grave. And then you know what happened? Joseph was bought out of slavery and Jesus Christ was resurrected. And Joseph went to the right hand of Pharaoh and Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God. You see, when you go back with a Christocentric lens, you can see Christ all in that. You can see Christ in the story of Hosea. A prophet who was told by God to go and marry a prostitute. Well, that doesn't make sense. I don't want to go marry a prostitute. And God says, I want you to go and I want you to marry her. And see what happens is, is Hosea goes and he marries a prostitute and he falls in love with her. That was something he wasn't anticipating. But even with her flawed past, he fell in love with her. And man, isn't that true? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Hosea ran away from, I mean, Hosea's wife ran away from Hosea and cheated on Hosea and went back to the lifestyle that she had lived before. And, and if, towards the end of the book, you find out that Hosea's wife had been taken and been brought up on the sex slavery block and was being sold to the highest bidder. And Hosea shows up on the scene and he pays for a wife that was already his in the first place. He redeems her off of the sex slavery block, the slave trade. He redeems her and brings her back in. You can see Christ in that. When you go back and you read Scripture through the lens of Christ, you can see Christ all over it. Let me make another bold statement, not that I haven't made enough already. Let me make another bold statement. Listen to me. Not all Scripture is equal. I'm going to explain myself. I see you guys looking. Not all Scripture is equal. In other words, and, and you know this, but it bears saying and explaining, you don't believe that all Scripture carries the same weight, do you? 
course not. Of course not. Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. Because if you did and your kids dishonored you, do you know what the scripture says you could do? Right. There are kids in the room like, what's it say, Mom? Y'all go study the Bible for yourselves. <laughs> you see, that's, that's you, don't, you don't think that it holds the same equally, right? Here's the thing. We might not think. We, we, we go and we pick and choose. It's weird because we pick and choose, but then we, we, try, to have a, we try to take the Scripture and we, we flatten it down and we give every Scripture equal weight, and not every Scripture has equal weight. The Scriptures that point to the true character and nature as revealed by Jesus Christ get more weight than those who portray God as a genocidal maniac. Do you hear me? For the Western Protestant church, that's by and large what we're all familiar with, there's a, a large portion of the Western Protestant church that has embraced a way of reading Scripture uh, by interpreting the Bible and everything in it as literal. And they go and they interpret it. I, I did for years. I was that way. I interpreted everything literal. You see, what happened was when the the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, the Protestant Reformation. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Y'all with me? Y'all want to keep going or you want to cut it off for next week? Keep going? All right. All right. So the Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. So the Catholic Church at this point had a rich tradition of, of tradition and oral history and, and, and authority and leadership and all sorts of, and scripture. But they begin to abuse that, right? And they begin to take scriptures and they begin to twist them and use them for for their purposes. And so they created things like indulgences in order to fundraise for the church. And so they created things like purgatory where you can go in as a holding place. And then if you uh, want to get out of purgatory, your family members can pay extra money to the church and then you'll get released from purgatory after you've died uh, a little sooner. Y'all tracking with me? When the Protestant, you have to earn your salvation. That was the thing. You have to earn your salvation. And so when Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation. He said, no, 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 no. I've looked through Scripture, and Scripture says that we don't earn our salvation. Scripture says you are saved by grace through faith, and it's a gift of God. And so he starts going into it and writing things out. He says 95 Thesis. He goes and nails it to the church door and says, you're wrong. So what happens is, is after the Protestant Reformation, they take this and they say, at the end of the day, this is the ultimate authority. Sola Scriptura. This is the ultimate authority. This is it. Not man, not this person, not that person. This is it. Ultimate Scripture. Ultimate authority. And then what happens is it begins to get flattened down. And we begin to read this ultimate authority. We begin to read this and hold it equally. Everything is equal. And so... While we can look and kind of look at the, the laws where stoning your child is, nah, that's a, that's a little, uh, we, we, we have an easier time putting that aside. But see, when, when God says, if you do this sin, I'll come after you with my wrath and my judgment, then we go, oh, that's valid. That's valid. You see, you got to be careful because if not, God's going to visit your, 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 the sin of your fathers for seven generations. That's scriptural. And we hold it up. 
And, and then so what happens is, is we, we don't understand how to divide this, rightly discern this, and we don't know how to take Christ and, and read it through a Christocentric lens. And so now we have a God of a- righteous anger and judgment, but he's also a God of love. And how many of you know God at the beginning of this whole thing, at the root of this, at the heart of this, he is love, church, amen? And God is righteous because he's love. And he's just because he's love. But he's never abusive because abuse doesn't exist in love. Amen? Abuse does not exist in love. And he's not visiting your sins to seven generations of your kids. Why? Because love keeps no records of being what? Wrong. God did not have to be paid off to forgive you. God forgave you. Man, let me just, I'm going to, I'm going to, three more minutes. Can I get three more minutes? Three more minutes. Just hear me. So this interpretation technique is called biblicism. And it's an interpretation method where we read scripture as flat text where every verse is considered the word of God and carries the same authority as any other verse. And it takes this mindset that all scripture is, is, is God being revealed. So God is being fully revealed throughout the, all, the entirety of scripture from the beginning to end. All of it is God. All of it. And then Jesus is the final piece. See, I've been preparing you guys for this over the last year and a half. And so we, we take all of it. This is all God. The problem with biblicism, the problem of interpreting, interpreting the Bible as completely literal all the way through, and do you all know the Bible is not one historical account and that's it? Do you know there's poetry in the Bible? There's wisdom literature in the Bible? There's narrative in the Bible? There's a play in the Bible? Didn't even, did you all know there was a play in the Bible? Did you know that? The book of Job. We want to take that as literal, and then we want to take it literally, and then we want to read that, 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 that whole text and go, well, anytime anything bad happens in your life, it happens to be because God allows it to happen, and the devil has to go before God and ask God for permission to hurt you, and so that's because it's in there. It's in the Bible, and you miss the entirety of what the book of Job is communicating. It's not communicating that. It's a bigger picture. I won't preach on it this week, but I will preach on it, I promise. It's a way bigger picture. But the problem with the way of reading this scripture like this is that it makes God, listen to me, it makes God the bad cop and Jesus the good cop. I talked to a guy this past week who said, I grew up, I grew up, my Christian life, I grew up thinking, God, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Because God, think about that. Thank you for Jesus. But, but because God. As if Jesus coming and living and dying for you was to save you from God. We're not thinking straight. I'm going. I'm going to stop soon. I promise. I just, you know, come on. Don't encourage him. Encourage me, Brian. Thank you. Okay, so, so, so you... So you get it. So what happens is, is when we read scripture like this, God's the bad cop. Jesus is the good cop. And Jesus isn't saving us from death. He's saving us from God. That's what we're told. Actually, we're told 
that God couldn't even look upon you until Jesus died for your sins. It's like God really, oh, I'm preaching another message that's going to, I'll get to that later. But I am. We're going to talk about redefining the cross. What did the cross look like? Because when the more you understand uh, Christ and the more you understand what we're talking about, you cannot look at the cross any longer and think that Jesus, that, that that whole situation was divine child abuse. That God had to beat Jesus on the cross in order to forgive you? That's divine child abuse. Okay, two more scriptures. Leviticus. We're going to go back to Leviticus. We are. Leviticus. We are going back to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14. Now, we do have kids in the room. So maybe little kids maybe not want to be in the room real quick. All right, so here's what it says. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14. All right, here we go. However, if you do not listen to me or obey all these commands, and if you break my covenant by rejecting my decrees, treating my regulations with contempt and refusing to obey my commands, I will punish you. I will bring sudden terrors upon you, wasting diseases and burning fevers that will cause your eyes to fail and your life to ebb away. And you will plant your crops in vain because your enemies will eat them. And I will turn against you and you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will run even when no one is chasing you. And, and, and if some of y'all have never read this before. And, and I could tell, some of you are like, oh. And if, it gets better. And if, in spite of all this, you still disobey me, I will punish you seven times over for your sins. And I will break your proud spirit by making the skies as unyielding as iron and the earth as hard as bronze. All your work will be for nothing, for your land will yield no crops and your trees will bear no fruits. And even if even... Then you remain hostile towards me. This is, this is Moses sharing to the people of Israel what he says God is saying. Listen. And even then you remain hostile towards me and refuse to obey me. I will inflict disaster on you seven times over for your sins. I will send, listen, listen. I will send wild animals that will rob you of your children and destroy your livestock. Your numbers will dwindle and your roads will be deserted. And if you fail to learn that lesson and continue your hostility toward me, then I myself will be hostile toward you. And I will personally, personally strike you with calamity seven times over for your sins. And I will send armies against you to carry out the curse of the covenant you have broken Watch, it says, and when you run to your towns for safety, I will send a plague to destroy you there. And you will be handed over to your enemies. And I will destroy your food supply so that ten women will need only one oven to bake bread for their families. They will ration your food by weight. And though you have food to eat, you will not be satisfied. If in spite of all this, you still refuse to listen and still remain hostile toward me, then I will give full vent of my hostility. 
and I myself will punish you seven times over for your sins. Now we're up to like 42 or something, right? It says, and then you will, listen, and then you will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters. And I will destroy your pagan shrines and knock down your places of worship. And I will leave your lifeless corpse piled on top of your lifeless idols. And I will despise you. I will make your cities desolate and destroy your places of pagan worship. And I will take no pleasure in your offerings. That should be a pleasing aroma to me. We could keep going, but it's not very pretty. So. How does that stack up? with the revelation of God that we get from Jesus. How does it stack up? 1 John chapter 4, and this is where we'll land. 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. 1 Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his son to be the savior of the world. And all who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. In verse 16, it says, and we know how much God loves us, and we have, to, we have put our trust in his love. God is love. What is God, church? God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows what? perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Now go back. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. It doesn't mean that you don't ever sin. It doesn't mean that at all. When you live like Jesus here in this world, you're living like Jesus. That means you are loving your enemies. You're laying down your life for those who persecute you. And it says, verse 18, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. Hear me. And if we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Perfect love drives out fear. And who is the expression of God? Jesus. The perfect expression of it, the exact representation of who God is. And remember we said this before, if you want to know what God looks like, he looks like Jesus. And if you can't imagine Jesus doing it, then you cannot imagine God doing it. You hear me? I know this is a lot to unpack. I know this is a lot going into our brains. But I'm going to tell you, just like I said at the beginning of this whole thing, at the end of every single message, we are going to come back to this. God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus, and God will always look like Jesus. And that's good news. That is good news. He loves you. All of you, every bit of you, the good you, the bad you, the fake you, the real you, he loves you. 
And when we understand how much he loves us, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. Go ahead and do me a favor. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I done hijacked your night.